You're listening to AT Conversations. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and my guests today are Richard Weston, an architect and academic and author, and Phil Coffey, who is the founder and principal of Coffey Architects. Um, and we're here today to talk about Coveridge, which is a private family home in Devon, which Phil has just completed. And um, Richard, you've had a good chance to look at Phil's designs. Um, what's your immediate impression? My Honest, the immediate reaction was that there was a kind of almost a disjunction between the grandeur and the architecturalness of the interior and the light. I mean, he's masterly at handling light. You know, the Louis Kahn, what slice of the sun enters your building is, I think it must be probably etched on his forehead, although he doesn't quote it. Um, and that, and, and the monumentality of that upper upper living space, the solar, as he calls it, um, and the almost at first glance has, has he converted the thing, <laughs> you know, so like the existing building, the roof form, until you start looking, and then you realise, of course, it's completely, you know, it's completely architectural, but in a, in a slightly different way. And I was, I was sort of struggling in a way to think, what, what did this remind me of? Not that it has to remind me of anything, but I, I have that kind of mind that searches for references. And I thought, it, it, in the end, I thought, it's a bit Alvaro Cesar. Um, I, he, Phil says it's Alto, and I wouldn't have guessed that. Uh, there's odd little allusions to this, that and the other. And then I came up with the thing he most reminded me of, and he, he'll probably be horrified, is Venturi's Trubeck and Wislocky houses, which I think Ooh. are kind of masterpieces. And they are about tweaking the vernacular and then entering and finding a world of quite extraordinary sophistication, complexity, I mean, really clever design. Venturi, at his best, I think, was a brilliant planner, absolutely wonderful architect. And I think what, what Phil has done here is actually create an interior of, you know, real, real, to me, real splendour within an almost <laughs> quotidian exterior. So, um, uh, are you are you horrified by that, Phil? <laughs> the venture. Well, I've, I've known Richard now for uh, what twenty five years, something like that. And, and as per as per usual, he always pulls a rabbit out of the hat as something I've never heard of or seen before. Right. So, so I'm horrified by the fact that I don't know what he's talking about. But I can't yet be horrified by the architectural intent of what he's saying. OK, well, I think I think he's levelling a charge of uh, postmodernism at you. <laughs> well, funny enough, I've actually, I've, because I've never really understood postmodernism, I actually bought a book on it recently and I got to page four and I actually put it down because I don't know what it is. I, I've always felt that um, a level, there's a certain amount of cynicism in postmodernism, postmodernism. And also I think... Um, What's the great book by Venturi? Um, uh, uh, Complexity, Complexity and Constant. I, I read that book and I, I have to say I really, really enjoyed it because it, it, it gave me a kind of a huge amount of freedom because it felt like one can do anything. And, and I, I think about 
maybe about three weeks later, I realized that I'm just not that kind of architect. And that actually I've got to try, <laughs> I've got to try really, really hard and find reasons to do everything that I do. Um, and in that I find beauty. Um, and I, and I find that's a kind of a different way of thinking to the kind of, it's very difficult to define postmodernism, but I get the sense that that, it, that kind of reasoning isn't actually a postmodernist way of thought. If I may, Israel, I don't yeah. think Venturi at that stage in his career was the kind of full-blown figural postmodernist. He was, his early projects, I think, are some of the most intelligent derivations from Alto in the whole of architecture since Alto. He was a brilliant spatial planner, absolutely brilliant, inflective. All many of the things that I think Phil is doing in this house were lurking there. You know, the exterior was more in those those two houses. It was more towards the postmodern end of the market, if you like. But it was still a very clever rereading of of the Cape Cod tradition, which, in a sense, mm. is what Phil's doing here. He's taking that roof which at first sight looks almost has it, you know, is it is it the same roof? But of course it isn't because it's incredibly crisply detailed. It's got the concealed gutter, absolutely abstract. It's got the cuts in, to let the light in, in a way that's that's really very inventive, I think. Um, so it was, I have to say, it was a project that I got to like more and more as I looked at it, which is uh, on the whole a good thing. I slightly shared your view, Richard, when initially when I got sent these sort of incredibly dramatic, poetic interior shots that Tim Saw's taken. Yeah. Phil sent these amazing references and you've talked about the Pantheon and the Taj Mahal and all the rest of it. And then you see this house that's almost determinedly kind of low-key suburban at first glance. And I accept it's much cleverer than that and it's beautifully detailed. But, you know, it did feel like frankly, you're messing with our head, Phil. You know, it felt like a very knowing, playful game with sort of grandeur and this almost uh, gallery-like austerity in something that feels so domestic, like they almost sort to be garden gnomes out the front. Yeah, I, I, mean, think, I think that's driven one, one by just the kind of architects we are. We're not kind of show-off architects. We're, just, we're experiential architects. You know, and I think there's a difference between designing from the inside to designing from the outside. And, and, and that sometimes that, that suited us as well and suited the client because the client is is not an ostentatious guy um, and he's not somebody who wants to shout out in a community like this. I think there's also something about sitting in a... The, the photographs... The, the house was designed... When we first visited the, the, the site, the house was designed and and the way the walls react and the way the, 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 the solar, the space and the roof reacts is so that you, you, when you're sat down, you don't see any other buildings around. And that, that's part of the play of the walls and, and the apertures. But it, it's also a kind of in, in direct response. There's a beautiful journey to the house, which is, I, I know you mentioned some of the references, and they seem a bit kind of highfalutin. Um, you know, you talk, you know, uh, Ronchomp, for instance. But I remember coming over the hill at Ronchomp and seeing Ronchomp on the hill. And, you know, that journey to the architecture and the, the journey is actually just as important as the architecture itself. And there's something in when you when you come to this house, you come around the point at Woolacombe and you see the house amongst other houses on the on, on the side of the quarry, in essence. 
and and it, and it doesn't really shout out to you. It's just part of the conglomeration of houses and the geology that sits there. And then you arrive at the house up the staircase, and it's it's quite a steep climb. And then there's the, the internal staircase that then takes you to the primary space that you've seen at the bottom of the hill. And there's something about the architectural promenade of sitting in that space, being surrounded by the houses that you know are there but not seeing them, that is actually all about the experience of architecture for me and how you manipulate space and how you manipulate light and how you manipulate view to create spaces that are kind of epiphonic. They have that kind of sense of bliss about them, which I think, you know, having having been taught by Richard uh, a very long time ago and um, the kind of people that taught me like Izzy Metzstein at the Mac, it, it's that kind of, you know, that love of calm and alto and people like that. And that kind of sense of the, Richard mentions monumentality, is that sense of kind of the transcendental that architecture can be. It can take you to a different place and at its best it makes it feel like the world is a better place. And if you can do that just as an experience, then I think that's a good place to start any architectural piece. So, um, Richard, as, as Phil's early mentor teacher... Is that down here ever since? Yeah. Oh yeah. Is that is there anything about this project that you want to take credit for? Oh, well, I, th- I think a little. I think my, my enthusiasm for alto. I mean, I think when I first got to know Phil, it was just after my book appeared, wasn't it, Phil? It was, yeah. The big out, the big alto, as opposed to the two smaller altos, and I, and I think that may have left a small mark. A small mark. Well, I think I think in particular, actually, to that, Richard is uh, uh, um, Richard en- encouraged me to, to to see buildings, and I, I I do the same now with any students that I teach because experience is, is is greater than any other way of learning about architecture. I think, and I've been fortunate to visit lots and lots of seminal buildings, but particularly Sinatzalo, which I think is one of um, mm. Richard's favourite buildings, um, and the the whole house. Uh, you know, in a sense, it's not necessarily just the plan. I love plans and I love sections. And there is a shift in the plan that I really like, which is the, the guest rooms at the back. When you come out and into the hallway, you get the underside of the roof and you get the long view to the rise and the quarry. That's a kind of an alto-esque kind of shift that, you know, that I see in the plan. But more importantly, just back to Sinatzala, which I spent some time at. The, the, the courtyard um, kind of typology is, is, is super interesting. But the thing, the thing that interested me most about it is kind of I do love light and I love that kind of experience of light and how it changes. And I always remember that, uh, uh, I think, a lecture Richard gave, which was the, the kind of the informality of the staircases on one side and the formality of the staircases on the other. Um, but more importantly, the move from the courtyard to the forest. And when I visited, it's not just the view that changes, it's fundamentally the light. What's interesting on the on the south side where the library sits, the, the, the library is of such a height and an angle that the sun um, on, uh, uh, at its lowest in the winter always reaches the bottom of the glazing on the south side of the glazing in the courtyard. And so when you're in the courtyard, you, you're always... Um, exposed to direct sunlight no matter what time of year it is and then when you when you touch that leather handle and you go into the um, individual community rooms you're then in into a completely different world of light which is the forest and the kind of the subdued darkness and you'll get the shadows but that experience is super interesting to me because it's a it's a light driven experience it's not a formal um kind of planned section driven experience in, in a sense and i've always I always say to the guys in the office you know, the best architecture you can't draw 
It's actually the feeling of the spaces that you make. This is AT Conversations. You can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And that's what this house is all about, really. The difference between the ground floor, the quarry, the reflection of the walls, the reflection of the sea and the sky, and then the kind of the the muted sucking of light and and punctured holes which draw your eye to the horizon. And there's a whole question there about being connected to the environment, which I think is really important at the moment. In that people, uh, we're getting an awful lot of inquiries at the moment for houses and other buildings because we talk about light a lot. And I think it's really interesting. COVID has has kind of progressed our way of thinking, let's say, because people are now much more aware of their environment. They're much mm. more aware of the places that they sit and they work and that, and the fact that their house faces north and it doesn't face south. Uh, my mum always asks me, you know, she sends me a house and she says, yeah, what do you think of this one? I say, can you tell where the sun is, mum? And she <laughs> says, I don't think I can. I say, well, it's not worth, it's not worth the, the, the paper it's written on or the, or the land it's built on. Architecture is very simple at its basics. But, you know, it, it, if you master the basics and you kind of experience architecture in a different way and think about it in those terms, I think you can make wonderful spaces without being, uh, or as Richard says, uh, grand. The thing that, I mean, this point about the kind of buildings that you, you have to visit to experience, and I would agree, I think Alto and also, I mean, Ronchamp's a classic case, isn't it, of a building that you, you don't really understand its scale or its position or anything until you until you go partly because there's nothing around it that kind of anchors it in that way, but partly because of the kind of plastic nature of the light and the form. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated that you say that yet you are, your photography is such an integral part of how you work. It's as though you're trying to record almost fanatically all the time, yet you're interested in buildings that you can't quite record in photos. So do you think that's a kind of Canute like uh, desire to capture the impossible. I think, I think it's really. I, 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 I think on my Instagram it says I like capturing light in three D and two D. And 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 you know to put it on a very simple level, the more you bake a cake, the better the cake gets. And you know, I'm always looking for light. I mean, everywhere I go, it's really. I'm quite fortunate. I'm on the twenty seventh floor of a tower, looking over. You know, facing west. I don't know why anybody would ever live on the east of this tower because you just miss the sunset. It must be the most frustrating place. But I just love living with the sun. And, you know, it, it, it is that exploration. I always say compositions are made in light. I was having a, conversation, I was having a chat with Hayes Davidson the other day. Um, who we were talking about how they make images. And it's quite interesting. They set the compositions up and then they search for the light within the composition. And what's quite interesting, taking photographs of Coveridge with Tim, is... Um, you can take a hundred photographs of a house and then the sun comes out and you take a hundred different photographs. Of mm. And I've always said, it'd be really interesting to, to kind of plot the movement of you know, a photographer in a landscape or in a building around a building. And you can tell the quality of the architecture by the thought of the experience of how you move that with a, with a camera. So I don't think it's necessarily um, um, kind of difficult in either to, to explore light, I think the way that you described it's, it, it's just it, it's something that I, I mean, I grew up with. My father's a photographer, and and it, it's just something that connects me directly to the environment. And it's again, it's about experience. I mean, I could talk about 
you know, that this house, and I said this about King's Cross when we finished King's Cross. King's Cross reminds me of being in the Alps. King's Cross reminds me of, you know, being, looking over the old manor store in Scotland or, or being in Torres del Paine and, and walking for five hours to capture the scale of that place. I don't see a difference, you know, and I think at its heart, it's a humbling of, of being in a world where you're such a small part of it and there's all this light around. And as an architect, you have an incredibly serious job because you're, you're so fortunate to be able to make something large enough to be able to capture the light that we all enjoy. And, and that, that, I just find that so incredibly beautiful, so much more than the composition of an elevation or a material change or whatever it may be, because it, it, you have to think of it as a whole, as an experience. And photography, I think, helps that endeavour um, because I learn a lot through Tim, or I have over the past, and I continue to do so. And, you know, when I'm, I was down in Cornwall last week, taking photographs of the tin mine in Botalak, and, you know, that, ge- that geometry on the side of a cliff with the sun setting, I mean, I could have, I could have, you know, I'd go there for a week and just watch that happen minute by minute, day by day. It's just so incredibly beautiful. Um, so I don't know whether that answers your question, but it gives a sense. Yeah, of- I, th- I think it does to an extent. I think I'm very interested in that point you say about, you know, the ability to say the King's Cross building to sort of transport you to another place, whether it's tapping into memories or moods or light. And I guess there's a decision, isn't there, with every project about whether you're trying to sort of amplify the peculiar conditions of the site or transform them I remember in my um this is a sentence I don't often say but in my days as a volume house builder (laughs) um, (laughs) and we built a a social housing project in Swindon and um the residents after was like oh yeah yeah you know we love it it's like we're not in Swindon anymore and (laughs) it's like you know we tried very hard to look at the local kind of railway cottages and the local vernacular and tap into the local color palette and and for a minute it's like oh sod you you know and then it's like, well, is that good? But is that really rude to Swindon to think that's brilliant that they think? <laughs> so yeah. if you think somebody like Peter Barber, you know, he very, very knowingly goes into sort of quite run-down urban areas and like, oh, I'm bringing a bit of the Casper or a bit of, a, you know, yeah. something else. And um, and it, you know, it's interesting if if somebody has chosen a beautiful, beautiful part of the coast and asks you to build a house, you kind of imagine that you know, you are amplifying accelerating nurturing the natural qualities but actually a lot of our coastal architecture is pretty dull so I suppose I'm interested in how you use architecture to actually kind of celebrate and almost exaggerate everything that's fantastic about the light and the view but maybe imply something that's rather more elevated in terms of the actual built fabric the the, the question is every window is a window but unless it asks you to look at it then you, you just accept it and so it no longer challenges you and your kind of your experience. And so I think there is an argument to say that um, I, I sometimes call it wit, not humour, but wit. And actually finding a geometry or a reason to make something that is it, at worst or at best, you could call it unusual. And that in itself amplifies what or asks you to look. And once you're looking, then you're connected. And once you're connected, then you're more connected to your environment. The, 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 and that, that's not necessarily, uh, sorry to use a, a kind of an old story, but um, I grew up in Liverpool and Munkhorn. And my, and my, my 
Nana lived in a in a uh, a council house, and when you walked into a house, it was. And I think what we're talking about, in a sense, is escapism. You know, you would walk into her house, and there's net curtains, and every room was different, and they'd all been decorated in different ways. And you, you, you'd sit in each room and you wouldn't know which way you were facing, whether it was north, south, east or west. But you went to my grandma's house and it was a much more bare terraced house in Liverpool with big windows, with light flooding in. And it felt it, it, there was a difference, one, in terms of your connection to the community, but also your connection to the wider community. And I think that is a really interesting question which I think comes from your question, which is like kind of the progress of modern architecture, like which I think is actually mostly about enclosure. You know, you can talk about kind of you know, walls and co- walls and punched holes and columns and beams um, through to um, domino you know, uh, columns um, and opening up on the freedom to, to, to break down that facade. And I think what's interesting now is because of a globalised world, you now realise that actually any effect we have or any any energy we use isn't just, doesn't affect us, it affects the planet as a whole. So your back garden is no longer your home. You, you know, your community isn't either, your town isn't. It's now the planet. And, and, and to my mind, that then means that, you know, if you're being contextual, you shouldn't, it's no longer about being I always think contextual is like the C word of modern architecture <laughs> because you know, the, the only context really now is our planet and how we think about saving energy and how we connect people to their environment. And I think the only way to do that, or at least the best way to do that, and it's the material that architects get to work with, is through light. So if you can get people to experience light in a different way and observe it, then you're, to my mind, you're, you're connecting to the environment, which is actually the job of an architect. And I don't think I'm saying anything new. I remember saying to Richard once, I did a book called Exposure and I wrote all of these words. <laughs> and um, Richard, wrote, uh, R- R- Richard said to me, but Phil, all you're doing really is just describing good architecture. And <laughs> it, it, there, there, there's a sense in that. But sometimes I think we've all forgotten what simple, good architecture is. The the other thing that occurred to me about this house actually was an event at the World School of Architecture 10 years or so before Phil was there, uh, and it was the first lecture in Britain by Tado Ando, which I happened to arrange, courtesy of the Japan Embassy. And the thing I remember, you know, you, you hear these lectures and you can only remember one or two things at most, I heard Khan lecture as a student, and the only thing I can tell you, he said, was about halfway up a staircase, it's nice if there's some, someone, somewhere for someone elderly to sit. That's all I can remember. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> Kermit the Frog's uh, life as well? <laughs> and, and what Tado Ando said, and I think applies very much in a way to the way Phil approaches design, he said, people think my plans, they call them minimal, but he said, in fact, they are designed to house maximum experience. They look simple, but he said, I design them like a garden walking through from one scene to another, Mm. one view to another. And when you look at his work in the abstract on paper, you obviously get the pictures, you get an idea, but the actual drawings, they appear to be almost too simple. Yet there's a phenomenal richness of experience packed in there particularly in the early the early work which was so wonderful Mm.
You're listening to AT Conversations. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And, and I think it is this, this fascination that Phil has with light is an intriguing one. That one thing I've never asked him, and I, I would be interested to know, is to what extent does the design process happen in what we might call the way I could have done it with a T-square and pencil <laughs> or a CAD modelling, looking at views and adjusting from the inside of what you're getting, of, of casting the sun and moving it during the day and, and then changing things. I mean, does that happen or do you still essentially design you know, with what you have in mind as a set of intentions, um, and you, you're, you know, let let the thing fall how it does. Um, as Frank Lloyd Wright said, to design in the perspective is a thing unknown to me, <laughs> except it be right in plan, section, elevation, it cannot be architecture. But I sense there's a kind of a, a dialogue going on between the experience as the computer can give you more hints about it than was easy to do, I think. Although architects say, oh, I live my plan, I can see everything in it, you know. But actually being able to project things is, is surely a big advantage. I, I think there's a, yeah, there's, a, there's a couple of things to say about that. I mean, yesterday I was having a design session on, on a courtyard that we're looking at in um, East London. Um, and the first thing I asked for was a 3D model with the, the, the movement of the sun. Um, as a movie but I, I think that's changing over time because I think I can't remember the architect was but they said I used to design with my brain then I designed with my pen and now I design with my mouth which is kind of quite a nice way of thinking <laughs> about how you progress but, but I, and I think it's about being conscious about what you're doing and of course you know when you first set out as an architect um, and you're trying to pay the bills um, you're just making architecture out of, uh, you know, you design in your mind and then you draw the plans and then you make it into a 3D building and then you start to kind of, well, why did I do that like that? And I learned from it and spending time in there photographing it enables you to do that, which is, I think is one of the beauties about being a photographer is you spend time in the things you design looking at it, which makes a big, big difference. And then you become conscious of it and then you think, okay, how can I, how can I organize a process, which is a process we've been going through in the office through a PhD at Cardiff, um, a PhD in practice, about how you take what you've learned and then start to apply it. And really, we were just in the middle of that conversation now because, you know, I think it's also to do with the people in the office as well, because, I, you know, I love a plan and I love a section. And as soon as I think of a space, I think of it in plan and section and I draw the plan and section. But the guys in the office uh, and there's a number of great designers in the office, they'll whack it straight into 3D. And, and I, I do similarly now. And then we start to look at the light. But I, I think there's a question of the resultant which is kind of, I'm really interested in this idea that it takes eight minutes and 20 seconds for the sun to, for the light from the sun to arrive. And on Coveridge, there's these, these beautiful drawings that we did, which, which is the light captured between the aperture and the surface within the house. So in essence, you're showing the light which has been captured by the house. And we've, we've not gone all the way that we want to go in the research at the moment or the way that, because there are, on Rhino, for instance, there are macros that you can use for reflected light, for how the light comes in and reflects around the space and the kind of materials and the shine that you might use from those studies. 
Um, and which is why I mentioned the Taj Mahal, for instance. It, it sounds very grandiose. <laughs> but 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 the, the thing that I love about the Taj Mahal and the, the, the and I only ever mention buildings that I've been to, by the way, because I think you have to have been there to really understand them. Um, and the National Assembly in Dakar. I'm really interested in reflection in the ground plane and how buildings are located and grounded by. I don't think the Taj Mahal would be half the building it is without the small river of water that runs up the middle, you know, where Princess Diana stood. And neither would be the National Assembly by Khan, which again grounds the kind of monumentality of them, but also makes them incredibly lightweight at the same time. So I think over time, Richard, it's changed, always with a preoccupation with light, but in a kind of a, in, a, in a very plan and section way. Now it's moved into a more 3D modeling question um, about how we can see what these spaces will look like or feel like and how they can respond. And now I'm really interested in the next stage of our development, which is how do you make an architecture which is actually born of that resultant light rather than being a resultant of the spaces that you make through aperture, if that makes sense. Of course, we have incredibly sophisticated modelling tools now, and you can know that scientifically you've allowed for certain movement and quality of light. But actually the triggers in design terms that make the resident or the user conscious of them are beyond computer models, aren't they? So to, yes. to, to bring, bring the conversation very down market, I've got a cat, very annoying in all sorts of ways. But one thing that's amazing is, you know, if a tiny rectangle of sunlight comes through at a different time of day, I'm really conscious of it because she goes there and lies on her back. She, she literally makes you kind of notice, you know, yes. almost know where she's going to be at any time of day. I probably wouldn't have clocked it otherwise. Um, so may, I think, you, may I interject? Yeah. It? I was going to mention Wayne Forster, who um, Phil's been studying his PhD with, he published a series of pictures on the back of the Royal Society of Architects in Wales, you know, occasional journal edited by Patrick Hannay, which was where his cat went to every every sunspot from dawn to dusk. um, They are incredible and they know from memory where those places are, don't they? Well, they're feline sundials, aren't they? (laughs) That's their most useful function and rodent control. I mean, they are extraordinary. And I I think a lot of of animals are are much more in touch with those sort of basics because they they don't, you know, they don't have higher thoughts, do they? But but, but, but Phil's right. His point about, you know, with the pandemic, with lockdown, those, um, what's the horrible word, word, circadian rhythms or whatever, we they become more valuable because you know we have less and less of the commute the alarm clock the breakfast at starbucks the office lunch the all these things that kind of give you rhythm and ritual and pace and all the things that we know we need we don't have them if we're in our home space all day every day um you know just from a basic mental health point of view those cues are so valuable and I completely can see that people who can afford a, a beautiful house with sea views are are flocking to have that. Mm. How do we how do we bring those moments into volume housing or smaller housing? Well, I mean, I think I think the answer is you can heighten awareness of the qualities and so on and so on in almost any situation. You don't need the sea out there. I mean, the views of the sea from this house are to die for, but you don't need that. 
you can still animate space with, with sunlight if you take account of the fact that the sun does follow a fairly predictable trajectory. I mean, the architect of the house I live in now, very ordinary, good house, um, he was obsessed with Danish architecture. And he pointed out that most of the decent estates in Denmark, the first priority was orientation to the sun. And they will have their main garden on the street with a hedge because the sun is so valued. And of course, in, in Scandinavia, generally, that's the case because they don't they get quite a lot of it in the summer, actually. But but they, you know, they don't they don't get it quite as year round as we hope we do. Um I mean, the thing, I mean, in my own case here, I've done the simplest of things because I knew I knew it would do something, which is my front garden. I made this pond and I made that pond partly because I knew it would reflect light onto the ceiling of the living room. Mm. So you get these ripples of light and it just brings the space alive. You know, and I, I naughtily put a series of glass discs on the on the, uh, the 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 stars overhead mapped onto the onto the patio on my birthday, <laughs> and oh. those in winter they produce a constellation of stars on the ceiling. Now these things are actually very simple. You know, a container of water with ripples will do the same thing, and it, mm. it, it's it's getting people away. I don't think. I don't think most people, if one, you know, don't sound condescending, but I, I think most people have difficulty noticing these r- really ordinary things. I mean, my front garden, made with mild steel rusting, not caught in, and a pond, I mean, it horrified the neighbours. One put a fence up so he didn't have to look at it. <laughs> and then he realised, <laughs> I suppose, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> But I, and I, I do think most people get, have real difficulty getting beyond the image, the convention. You know, I mean, this the architect of this house, I remember he said, this is way back, obviously, in the 50s and 60s, he was talking to how, you know, housewives, as we had in those days, on an estate, and how they put a, an arrangement of flowers in the window to look good from the outside, to impress... <laughs> Not to enjoy themselves the best side, but and he said, I just couldn't, I just couldn't understand it. He said, and and I, I do think it's a real, it's a real educational thing with with the volume house building because it, it it's not that difficult. In it takes a little more care than the average. Won't we won't name names? Mass volume house builders, you know, produce. But but I think equally, it's the sensibility. And I think that can come from early education. I mean, children are pretty sensitive to things. And I think it's something that, that can be learned and probably has to be learned as a response. Because actually what is learned is, is all kinds of experience that crowd out something as elemental as looking at the play of light on a wall. I mean, most people think, well, you must be mad looking at a wall just to put some light on. And you say, well, it's, uh, you know, look at a Talawando wall with light on. Mm. Is there anything more magnificent? And, 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 it, and it's free. It doesn't, you know, it just takes a little bit of care in how that light enters, a little bit of care in the choice of the material and the decoration not to overwhelm it, and you're away, aren't you? I mean, I think in a way that's one good thing, isn't it, about lockdown? You know, as Phil says, if it has made people absolutely look for the joy and the poetry in the everyday yeah, and in the okay. stuff that's around yeah. them. Uh, you know, hopefully that's something that will stay with us. 
I think, I think it's also the job of the architect. I mean, uh, it, you know, Cardiff was a great place to learn because it was, it was a five-star rated sustainability um, school when I was there. Um, and, you know, the first lessons that you went to were, you know, to do with literally passive house back then um, and new values. And, and there's a science to the there's a science to, to architecture at the Welsh School of Architecture at that time. And I do think, you know, talking about mass housing and, and possibly kind of affordable housing and council housing, you know, passive house is now becoming incredibly important. And the apertures in passive houses, we've just done a passive house certification in the office. Um, you know, you have to be very careful about where you put windows these days. You know, gone is the goldfish bowl of like the, the, the 90s where you just put an extension on the back and say thanks very much and you don't worry about threshold. We, through the science of architecture, you, you now need to think about aperture. The, the question, I think, for architects is how we, we bring it back to the art of architecture, which is the emotion and connecting to people. Um, and, and I think it's a great opportunity to do that. And we should grasp it with, 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 with both hands. Phil and Richard, thank you very much for joining me. Um, and your cat. And my cat. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.